0: This week on the Back Table Podcast.
1: For people that are just starting out or are interested in starting out, I think that the hardest thing is just overthinking it. And so don't overthink it. Remember that it's optional. Don't be worried if you are only doing one or two a month. You know, as long as it's an option for patients, you're going to have that patient that needed an elementary school teacher that needs to take the day off just to come see you. And the fact that you offer video consultations is going to really make her day. And so don't feel bad if you don't have high volume.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Backtable podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and at backtable.com. We now have CME available. You can get AMA Category 1 CME for listening to Backtable and then filling out a reflection. You can find the CME links on the episode pages at backtable.com, or you can also find the CME links in the show notes, powered by CMEfi using AI technology to bring the right education to the right place at the right time. Now, on with the episode. This is Aditya Bagrodia as your host this week, and I'm very excited to introduce our guest today, Chad Elimuthil from the University of Michigan Department of Urology. Welcome to the show, Chad. How are you doing today? Great,
1: thank you for having me on.
0: Absolutely, yeah, I've been looking forward to this one. I mean, of course, the circumstances of heavy load pandemic round two slash three are things that we're kind of squarely dealing with. And, you know, in my opinion, whether it's pandemic or not pandemic, you know, it seems like telehealth's here to stay. What do you think about that?
1: Yeah, there's no doubt about it. I think that, you know, I've been a big fan of telehealth for a very long time. I became interested back in 2016 when I first joined the faculty at University of Michigan. I was seeing patients that were traveling hour, hour and a half to come see me for a 15 minute consultation about their stable stone. And, you know, essentially I was looking at it x-ray and essentially saying, you know, I'll see you back in six months and do the same. So it just, seemed like there needed to be a better way. And that's when I first got interested in telehealth back then. It was clunky. It was a fragmented payer system. So it was hard to navigate all the rules, but I was interested in it and it was working. And then it really took off after the pandemic. So I think that for a long time, it's always made a lot of sense to me that telehealth was here to stay and it's going to be an integral part of healthcare delivery. And um, I think that the problem was that there was a lot of resistance to change and patients and providers were not exposed to it. When I got exposed to it, I saw that there was a big need for it. And then the pandemic, for better or worse, made a lot of people exposed to it. And as a result, I think people like it and it is for sure here to stay.
0: As I was preparing and reflecting for this podcast, a couple of thoughts came to my mind. One was humbling. You know, I think that we as providers often feel like patients really want to spend a lot of time with us and You've got these relatively short visits and, you know, the punchline may be PSA is undetectable, glad you're still content and potent. And, you know, that's kind of the extent of the medical interaction. And surely some patients are happy to have that be the extent of it. And, you know, in the same breath, I think we go into medicine because we like that relational aspect of it and dwindling some of that away is tricky. The second thing is, you know, I've certainly enjoyed having telehealth visits for myself as a patient. You know, I can be at my office doing what I need to do. The doctor pops on either on time or late, not really a big deal. We spend 15 minutes together and I go about my day, you know, contrasted to maybe a half day off of work or canceling a clinic, et cetera. But I think it's certainly got merit as I see it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I'd love to dig into this in terms of what the patient experience has been like, you know, throughout the podcast. But, you know, I have to kind of second uh, what you just said about being humbled. You know, I, part of my role at University of Michigan is the director of telehealth for our department. You know, so as I'm encouraging people to use telehealth, you know, sometimes I'll hear My patients just want to see me in person. They don't want to do a telehealth visit. I'm like, well, have you asked your patients that? Are you sure? (laughs) Or is that what you believe? And, you know, it's true for a lot of patients, they do want to come in, but I think that telehealth does make sense for a lot of different diagnoses. And I think once we realize that, we also realize that our health system, as much as we like to throw around the word patient-centered, isn't that patient-centered. I mean, for the most part, care delivery is provider-centered. We walk from room to room. Patients show up in our rooms, and uh, we don't necessarily need to know the story of how they got there, what time they woke up, the fact that they had to take a half day off of work to be there to look over an x-ray with you. So we don't necessarily even need to know that story. We just move from room to room. Patients are ready to go. That's provider-centric, in my view. Having the opportunity or giving the patient's choice as to whether they want to see you in person, whether they want to see you virtually, or even just talk to you on the phone or electronically is really much more patient-centered.
0: Yeah. So... Over the last 18 months or so, I think many health systems, physicians' offices, etc. have launched a telehealth platform. And to be sure, there's going to be offices and providers that haven't. And I think it can be intimidating, I would guess, if you're thinking about the nuts and bolts of this. And my first question would be for a practice or provider that doesn't have a telehealth or telephone visit present, I mean, is this really as simple as a telephone call, documentation, learning billing codes for a telephone visit, and then some type of video interaction, whether that's FaceTime or WhatsApp or Doximity, video call, and then appropriate billing. I mean, can it be that easy?
1: It can. And I think my biggest advice for people that feel intimidated by starting a telehealth practice is just to take the pressure off. And if you strip down telehealth, It's essentially interacting with the patient for a clinically appropriate manner, either through telephone or through a technology that enables video conferencing. And if you're going to start, this is the time to start because of obviously the need for social distancing, but then also because many of the regulations around the type of technology that you need, compliance and so forth, they've actually relaxed right now because we're in a national public health emergency. So you can use FaceTime, you can use those types of common technologies, or you can invest in a technology that meets those security requirements. But really what you're doing is delivering the exact same care that you would do in the office. You're talking about that kidney stone, you're talking about that CT, you're talking about active surveillance, the PSA results, the same way that you would in person, but you're just using technology to do it. And I think if you think about it that way, it makes it a lot easier. And then that's actually all that's required for the billing part too. The insurance companies are looking for an audio component and a video component for some billing codes, and then just the audio component for other billing codes.
0: Yeah. And I I think that it's pretty digestible. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but for the audio only telephone visits, it's strictly time-based and as long as you kind of get that in there, you've kind of checked that box and then actually for the video visits, it's the same as an in-person, is that accurate?
1: Yeah, it's very accurate. The only you know, asterisk that I would add to it is with everything, there's layers and layers and layers. There are some insurance companies that will, you don't have to necessarily use time-based billing for audio, but for the Medicare program, yes, it is actually all time-based. And for the video component, I think it was a little tougher prior to 2021 when the new E&M guidelines came out, but Prior to that, it was a little tougher because especially for new patients, you had to meet certain components of the physical exam. But now with the new evaluation and management guidelines, there is actually no difference because the physical exam is only necessary. If it's clinically necessary, it must be done and should be documented, but it's not necessary for billing. So I think it has made it a lot easier and simpler to perform telehealth visits.
0: Yeah. As an aside, I've had some kind of interesting virtual physical exams that, uh, <laughs> <laughs> as a urologist. See, or... I,
1: I, st- I stay away from that. I, I actually have not, <laughs> I haven't opened that door yet. So, uh, if I need to see something urologic, they're usually coming in.
0: Do you have a sense of what proportion of healthcare providers have telehealth capabilities kind of current day snapshot?
1: Yeah, I think it's harder for me to know percentage of providers that have those capabilities. But we do know pretty definitively that the number of across all specialties, the number of visits that are being performed month by month has been very stable. So it's ranged somewhere between 15 and 20 percent. Some specialties are much higher, like mental health specialties, for example, are in the 60s and 70 percent. But across the board, when I look at large national data from the Medicare program, it ranges monthly between. 15 and 20%. And I have access to commercial data too. And it ranges, it's at about 20% right now.
0: Yeah. And anecdotally, my wife is a pediatrician, small private practice. And, you know, within a week, they were able to kind of get a telehealth platform up and running. So my sense is that outside of potentially single providers, maybe people that are not as technologically savvy, that the uptake has been pretty ubiquitous. So maybe let's assume that we have capabilities. Do you have some sense of what are appropriate and inappropriate visits for telehealth, both new patient and follow-up?
1: Yeah, it's it's a really good question. And it's actually, it's a question that we've struggled with for many years, even prior to the pandemic, as we were trying to set up rules and you know, scheduling decision trees and so forth. We've had to make lists of proper diagnoses and so forth. And it ends up being very, very difficult to answer. And I'll give you some reasons why. So you may think that, you know, for example, a patient that's seeing you for a elevated PSA may be inappropriate for telehealth because you have to do a rectal exam. Well, what if they're seeing you for an elevated PSA, they've seen their primary care doctor, they've have a prostate MRI already done, you know, would that be appropriate? So it's sometimes... It can't be as superficial as the diagnosis to understand what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. And then, you know, the other example is how concordant is the care that we're providing with the AUA guidelines. So for erectile dysfunction, for example, you should have an initial evaluation does require a physical exam. So that's in our guidelines. We think that's good care. Now after they've gotten that physical exam and we've set up care do they need to come back to see you in person just to refill their Viagra? I don't think so. So, you know, I think that it's hard to look at a diagnosis and say what's appropriate, what's not appropriate. More so, what's important is to kind of understand functionally, is there a strong reason that that patient needs to see you? Do they need a physical exam? Do they need an in-office procedure? If they don't need an in-office diagnostic test or a physical exam, then I think that they could be seen virtually.
0: And I personally think, and I haven't really fleshed out the economics of this, that the downside of an initial kind of triage televisit to make that determination of does the patient need an exam at the first visit is probably a reasonable first screen. I mean, I think a kidney cancer patient, we typically think about palpating to see if they have a flank mass. But, you know, let's be honest, in the 21st century, that's an uncommon affair. And you know, maybe you say, okay, good, you've got a eight centimeter renal mass, here's your symptomology, et cetera, and you schedule them for surgery. And then at the day of surgery, you can actually ascertain that whether that changes anything or not, again, is debatable, but that was just kind of a thought.
1: Yeah. And I think that's the part that's unknown right now. And that is something that we have to continue to monitor because it's true anecdotally, we can think of circumstances where you probably don't need to do that physical exam. You can make that decision later on a follow-up visit. But on the flip side, I think what a lot of policymakers and insurance companies are thinking about is that, is that just going to lead to unnecessary care? So infertility workup, for example, you can see the patient and you could do a scrotal exam on them. That may be the end of it, but if you can't do an exam on them, are you going to order a scrotal ultrasound? So was that scrotal ultrasound really necessary if you had just seen the person in person? Are you going to bring the patient back for a second visit just to do a postvoid residual when you could have seen that? And so I think, you know, there's examples that I hear that are just like your example, and then also a counter example where it seems like it's driving up additional care. So ultimately, I mean, I think that's something that we need to see in the long run. And we do have to make sure that we're not inconveniencing patients because our first visit is more convenient, in the end, we have to kind of make sure that we're using resources carefully. And I think that's what's going to be the end game here is that over time, if we're seeing that these visits can be done efficiently through video first and only bringing patients in when they need to, then for sure telehealth will be viewed as an efficient form of care. But if that's not the case, then people are worried that it may drive up healthcare spending.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It makes sense. And I think like so many things, it's hard to come up with black and white generalizations for everything. You know, if it's a BPH patient that's got mild symptoms, that's one clinical scenario. If you're worried they're in retention, you probably ought to have a PVR on them just to confirm that they're not in retention and something dangerous is potentially going on. Exactly. So I think it's going to be hard to provide kind of a summary statement. I mean, I think we're still doctors here. We still have to do an appropriate intake. I've seen some of the things you've done really clearly outside of urology, sickle cell patients, patients with prostate cancer active surveillance, kind of ER visits. I mean, it's it's kind of a crazy thing to think about, you know, a virtual ER visit. That's probably mentally where we're like, yeah, that patient needs to be seen and have their labs and EKGs and chest x-rays, but it's likely going to require tedious algorithms where we're going to probably have some folks kind of slip through the cracks and it's going to be this balance of sensitivity and specificity.
1: Where I kind of land on this is that I agree that it's what people often think it's a simple answer as to what could be seen, what can't be seen. And I think it's way more complex like you laid out. But I think that ultimately where I stand on this specific question is that it should be up to clinicians and it should be up to professional societies. So I've I've always felt that artificial guardrails that are set up by insurance companies, you know, we all face those with prior authorizations and so forth, will just kind of make the system more complex. What we need is that groups like the American Urologic Association, you know, we put out guidelines on the management of every di- every urologic disease. And I think in the future, it would be great if when we put out guidelines for prostate cancer, we put out guidelines for erectile dysfunction, that there's always a section on how virtual patients can be handled. And people say, well, you may not have enough data. My response is that, have you looked at the guidelines? The majority of the guidelines are based on expert opinion. So, you know, a lot of times it could be just an expert opinion or a consensus of experts about, you know, how virtual care could be delivered for this particular population of patients. And then if we have those kind of guidelines out there, I think it'll make the delivery of telehealth a lot more efficient. And then providers won't be as worried about missing something because they know that they're supported by the consensus of the community.
0: Yeah, actually, literally right prior to our podcast, I was fortunate enough to review the localized prostate cancer guidelines from the AUA, and maybe one of my comments will be consider putting a statement on appropriateness of um, virtual visits. That'd be great. All right. So, you know, we've decided to have a virtual visit 101 as physicians. What's kind of a reasonable expectation in terms of professionalism setting, at tire. I mean, I've seen a whole host of fairly hilarious things when I have my video visits. Most recently, somebody in silk pajamas, smoking a cigarette. <laughs> <laughs> what do you advise a, a physician? You know, should you be actually, I'm not going to kind of throw anything out there. What, what's your kind of practice, Chad?
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a really good, that's a really good question. This is called website manner. So how should you conduct these visits? And I have a lot of stories we could certainly talk about in terms of the patient side of things I've, I've witnessed. I don't think anyone will ever put restrictions on patients You do what you're comfortable with. But I think that upset drive a car, which I've been in a couple, <laughs> couple instances where people are actually driving during their visit. But, you know, I think that uh, from the provider side, there's a, a couple rules that we could follow because these visits are inherently different than um, in-person visits. One, I have to say, is beyond time. I think that when patients are in your clinic and uh, they're waiting for you, they know that, you know, they've been seen by the nurse and you're in the next room and you're going to be there soon. But when patients are at home and they're particularly if they're unfamiliar with the technology, haven't done a video visit before, if they're waiting for 10 minutes, they feel like they've done something wrong. So. That I think is important. If you have video visits in your client grade, what I usually advise is that you try to do them back to back because they tend to run more on time than in-person visits. So if you're doing them back to back, if you have a block day, half block day, a couple hours, full day, then you'll run on time. It'll be a better experience for the patient. Everything is just better. The second thing is that I think it's important that you stay focused on the camera when you're delivering a video visit too, because uh, when we're in a clinic room, you know we could be typing, we could look over at the computer, look up a chart, but the patient knows that you're still involved in their care, you're just looking something up, but when we're when you're doing a video consultation and you're looking at a computer, you know your eyes off the screen, it looks like you're not paying attention, and that does affect the experience with the visit too and then I think My other advice and just in terms of attire is that this is a new experience for patients. So making the experience as professional as possible for the patients will actually help their acceptance of the visit. And, you know, that might mean if you wear, you know, if you're just usually just wearing a button down, unbuttoned in in clinic, maybe for the video visit, you wear your white coat or you wear a suit or you wear a dress or you wear something that makes you look professional. I see in your background there, you have your certificates and degrees and so forth. And I think that contributes that Adds to the professionalism of the visit. The patient accepts it more, and the patient's experience is better as a result of that.
0: Yeah, I think that's valuable, and clearly, it's complicated, right? I mean, we're in the midst of a pandemic. Providers are at home; they've got family members, kids, whatever things going on, and it's a balance. I mean, I I'm the type of person that if I'm on a professional call, and if my kids were to pop in, I would be mortified, and you know, I really take take steps to prevent that, but. In the same breath if somebody else's child or dog or whatever pops in i'm like okay they're just kind of going through life as best as they can so yeah i think that's spot on you know we're professionals you want it to be a professional engaged encounter and you know one thing i'll just kind of throw out there is sometimes when i'm on these video visits i get the sense that like the patient also sees it as a bit more of a casual encounter and maybe not being in that waiting room and seeing that you're running around like a chicken with your head cut off, trying to take good care of patients, leads it to more of like, a am FaceTiming with my grandkid or my son type of experience. than you know, this is a finite bit of time where I need to be respectful of the provider's time as well. Have you come across any of those findings anecdotally? Oh, yeah, for sure. I, I've I've definitely seen that.
1: And, you know, the way that I view it is that it doesn't, it actually doesn't bother me much. I think what does bother me is when patients don't show up for the visit, for example, because it was just a video visit. It's no big deal. But it was a big deal because you took a spot from a different patient that, you know, could have gotten in sooner. So, you know, I think that's probably the only part of it that bothers me. Or if they're doing something dangerous like driving, which, hey, which is, I wish it was a single instance of that, but I've seen that multiple times. And for the record, I usually tell them to pull over because I, you know, I think that that's just it'll be lead to a bad situation. But anyway, you know, in, in, if they want to be in their pajamas, if they uh, want to lay on their couch while they're doing it, I think that you know that's totally fine. I actually want them to be comfortable. I don't really expect anything during that visit. Just want to be able to have their attention so I could deliver the care that I would like to. You know, I joked about the driving, but there are visits I've had where patients are running errands and you know, kind of just fitting it in real quickly. And I think that. You know, ultimately, that affects our rapport, and rapport is the most important part of delivering good care. And they have to trust me; I have to trust them that they're going to follow up. And I think that if both parties are giving undivided attention on your part, you're you know you're dressed the part, you're listening to them, you know their medical record backwards and forwards because you've already looked at it, and you can deliver the care looking right at the camera and give them the advice they need. They appreciate that, and then if they're listening, then I think that it just leads to a better experience for both parties.
0: So one of the things that I was actually thinking about when I was kind of reviewing your rather extensive resume and reading up on telehealth is I didn't see that there's been a report on no-show rates for telehealth video visits versus in-person. I might just not have come across it. Any Anything out there?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think we have to look at those numbers again, post-pandemic. We did do a study that was specific for urology where we compared uh, Juan Andino actually was the the resident that was on that. He's our chief resident here at University of Michigan. But we looked at video visits versus a mass control of in-clinic visits, and we actually found that the no-show rates were exactly the same. And I think providers noticed the no-show for video more often because they're sitting there in front of the computer, waiting for that button to turn on. Whereas in clinic, you have a million other things to do, but the no-show rates were were the same. I think that the big caveat with that study was that that was pre-pandemic. It was a different population of patients. It was patients that were motivated for these visits, had a strong reason to do these visits. So they were more motivated to show up. I'd be really interested to see how it is post-pandemic. And I actually think the part that is going to be you know, most interesting is it's probably going to be aligned with what we see with no show rates for in-person in the sense that, you know, it tends to be like a younger population that doesn't show as opposed to the older population that even if they have more technological difficulties, they will figure out what they need to do and show up for their visit. That's just kind of what I've seen anecdotally.
0: Yeah, I, I would agree in general. So before we kind of jump into like setting up for success, I mean, of course, we've all faced issues with logging on and Wi-Fi, and there's so many considerations with underserved populations and so forth. Kind of a random question. What about out-of-state consultations? I mean, this is, you would think, just an amazing opportunity. I mean, from a marketing standpoint for a healthcare system, just access to patients that you've, you've got really a unprecedented opportunity. How do you all navigate that? Yeah,
1: that's a really good question. So that's called a that topic is called interstate telehealth. It's funny. So when I get messages, you know, that UVM faculty about interstate, hey, I have this patient that's in Indiana. Can I do a video visit with them? They usually get this very long email <laughs> reply back from me, and <laughs> and they're just like. Never mind, (laughs) forget it. But the truth is that it is actually a pretty complex topic and maybe unnecessarily complex. So prior to the pandemic, medical licensure, I mean, even now, medical licensure is at a state level. So the states decide on how you can use your medical license. We apply for licenses. We are allowed to practice with patients that are located in the state, physically located in the state during the time of the visit. So I have a Michigan license. And if I have a patient that lives in Michigan, but then takes a trip to Florida, I'm technically not allowed to perform telehealth with that patient. If I practice in Southeast Michigan and a patient lives 45 minutes away across the border in Ohio, I'm technically not allowed to practice telehealth with that patient. During the public health emergency in March, 2020, 50 out of 50 states had executive orders that allowed interstate telehealth. So you can practice with patients in other states because it was necessary. Since then, I think the latest numbers I looked at were in November of 2021 there's about 19 states that still allow that. So a lot of those governors' executive orders have expired. So a lot of the rules, whether they know it or not, have actually gone back to the pre-pandemic state. So it is a complex topic and it's actually more than just state licensure. It actually involves insurance and also involves malpractice as well. So the short answer to it is that telehealth across state lines is a great opportunity, but there's a couple layers of regulation and complexity that make it probably more complex than it needs to be. I think in the future, being able to see patients across state lines is really the way to go, particularly with telehealth, because it makes it so easy.
0: Yeah, I I totally believe that. My University of California video attestation statement is generally about five times the length of my actual note. So there's a lot of kind of stuff in there that I guess is checking some boxes. So you've got a video visit. You're excited to you know, engage a patient and it's always something, right? There's setting up the technology, there's video issues, there's audio issues, there's slow drop connections, you know, wait times, as you, as you mentioned, I think despite our best efforts, it's tough. So maybe we start out open-ended Chad with some of the things that you all have done to kind of preempt, prophylactically handle these things. I mean, when I have a dentist appointment, I get a text message the day before. That says, hey, don't forget you have an appointment tomorrow at 1030 because, you know, the dentists are probably smarter than we are and want to make sure that they're not missing that opportunity to see a patient, and everything that comes along with it. So maybe just like setting up technology, what do you kind of advise?
1: Yeah. So I think, you know, I will be first to admit that we're far from experts in this area. I think that there's certainly a disparity in how telehealth visits are accessed in terms of the ability for patients to do it based on income, based on technological savvy. And I don't think that we've come up with the perfect solution to help patients set up. Some of the things that we have done that certainly help in that process is that we've aligned all of our telehealth visits, at least the steps for our telehealth visits with the same steps as in-person visits. So you have to be enrolled in our patient portal in order to do a video consultation with us it's through the same patient portal app that you would use for your results and to message your doctor. So as long as you can reach that threshold of being able to enroll in that portal, then taking that additional step to do the video visit is not much more. So you get a reminder through your portal, you get a reminder before the visit. I don't know the exact timing of those reminders, but I do know that they're exactly the same as in-person visits. So then when patients are ready for the visit, they go in and when they click through the portal, the app is automatically launched so that they can, you know, use their existing camera and using their existing microphone. So we encourage patients to use their smartphone as much as possible, because you have both of those necessary pieces, the mic and camera right in front of you, as opposed to having to deal with separate technologies. So those are the kind of the basic things that we've done. I will highlight there is a program at University of Michigan that's run by our colleagues here. I'm not involved in it, but uh, it's called Get Access. And uh, that program is a volunteer-based, some medical students, undergraduate students that are enrolled in that program that will help older patients set up uh, video consultations or not just older patients, but patients that have difficulty. And those types of programs I think are really important because they may have more time and frankly, more knowledge than some of the clerks who you know may not have a smartphone themselves. And uh, they can actually help walk patients through some of the basic steps. I mean, Ultimately, like it may be steps like I don't know what my Apple ID is, I don't know you know how to download an app. These are some basic things that people can help out with. and that sort of outsourcing, it's kind of internal outsourcing may be a good model for other larger systems to take on for smaller practices. Obviously that's harder to do, and I think that ultimately smaller practices will have to decide, you, know, you either take up your clerk's time who could be scheduling other appointments to do this, or you find a different mechanisms, but patients definitely need that help.
0: Yeah. You know, it's kind of funny, even over the course of my career, I think the burden, if you will, on MAs and members of the team that are rooming patients with extensive questionnaires about everything from, I mean, forget it. Let's start out with vital signs, you know, kind of basic vitals. Then there's the Extensive history, I mean, religious histories, other aspects such as relational status. Do you feel comfortable? Do you have guns in the home? I mean, it goes on and on and on. And in some ways, and I know this is may come across as controversial, telehealth visits to me have trimmed that down in kind of a big way. And if I may, you know, hearing what you're saying, that taking in some of this technological intake may actually be quite important. I mean, when we look at underserved populations who may or may not have smartphones, may or may not have Wi-Fi, older patients that may not be as technologically savvy, people that speak foreign languages where you've gotta get translators involved. I mean, these are real world things that are clearly a barrier to having a telehealth visit. And, you know, you could probably make an argument that many of the populations I've just described are the ones that could benefit the most without having to travel, arrange for rides, arrange for childcare, take time off of work. So I think, you know, investing somebody's time to intake these critical elements, you know, nuts and bolts, practical things, can you download an app? Can you log in? Is this foreign to you is actually a great idea. Yeah. I mean, I, the quote that I like to throw around, I've been doing it for a long time is that a
1: vision without funding is a hallucination. And I think that a lot of people you look at hospital CEOs and other health system leaders and practice managers and so forth, you know, believe that telehealth is part of their strategy, you know, moving forward, it's going to be a big part of their strategy. But if you don't put the money down to have patient support, I think you're set up for failure. You know, I'll, I'll give one, I think, pretty concrete example related to something that you mentioned, which is non-English speaking. At the university, we have a virtual interpreter services. So when I've logged on to a virtual visit for a non-English speaker at this already waiting for me as an interpreter that will go through the visit. So that exists and that's actually existed a long time. But when we looked at our data in terms of what was the probability that a non-English speaker would perform a video visit, what we found is that there was a big probability that they wouldn't. And that's basically what it came down to is that these non-English speakers were not getting scheduled for video visits. But we have virtual interpreter services. Why does that happen? Well, if you dig And and, I haven't done this yet, but if you dig deeper, what we're ultimately going to find is that the path of least resistance is when you're scheduling these visits, or or a clerk scheduling these visits. The path of least resistance is just you know what, just come in person, and that's because the person on the other end has about a hundred other things to do rather than explain to a non-English speaker how to do a video consultation. And so I think that if you don't recognize those things, then disparities will certainly grow. And alongside this idea of having video available for patients is coupling it with the resources that patients need to conduct these visits. All patients need to conduct these visits successfully.
0: And of course, you know, there's the option, I think, if you try to go through a telehealth visit and it's just not happening for a variety of reasons, you know, I I guess it'd be a conversion rate to a telephone visit, which I'm sure has its ramifications in terms of the interaction in and of itself. And then, you know, obviously there's billing implications But, you know, for me, I would say after about two to three minutes of trying, I kind of pull the plug and say, okay, I'm just gonna give you a call and let's sort this out over the phone. I do the same thing. And I think that's the
1: right thing to do. Your mentality in clinic, whether it's in person or virtual should be to take care of the patient. And I think that you can try if the video component is essential to the Care delivery, then keep trying because you need that video, or they have to come in in person. But if it's not essential, if you're doing a counseling visit, then you just pick up the phone and call them. And uh, we have the ability to do that during this public health emergency. One thing I am very much worried about now—we're kind of getting into the future policies and post-COVID world—are the billing implications. And so, if those, if that video component is taken away, in some payers may not cover a phone visit. So you you schedule the visit. You deliver the exact same care over the phone. You just didn't use the video, but now this is actually a non-covered visit. You know, it's just kind of it's it's kind of insane how like and this is why I do this research and try to put out this data because it's not logical and not aligned with how care is delivered and it's not practical for patients. Like if you deliver the same exact care, why wouldn't you be able to bill for it the same exact way?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think all of us have probably heard multiple times over, you know, once telehealth kind of kicked off that people are like, oh my gosh, you know, I spend all these times discussing results or handing patient messages and, you know, I can finally bill for it. And, you know, you're never going to meet a lawyer that's going to chat with you on the phone for an hour about X, Y, and Z and not bill for it. So, you know, as those lines between personal and professional continue to get blurred with, you know, just expectation of a, Direct access to a physician 24 7, you know, work life balance and how it plays into all this is probably a whole nother conversation. But I do think that if you're spending a lot of time providing patient care, it's reasonable to want to bill for it.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, there's two sides to it. And I always kind of play the devil's advocate. And and, because I think that's important to have like a balanced conversation. And I think that, yes, if you're delivering the exact same care, I think that it is important to be able to bill for it. That's a concept called payment parity, which is that no matter if you're delivering care in person, if you're delivering care through telehealth or delivering care through just a telephone call, you should get essentially reimburse the same amount. That's the concept of payment parity. It's in state legislative bodies across the country. They're debating this. We don't know how the policy is going to be after the public health emergency, but there's a strong argument for payment parity. So I think that's important. But along that, I think it's also important that we don't abuse this too. And it's really important that if you're calling a patient back with results for a CT scan, are you having a full evaluation and management visit with that patient? So are you going through all the billing requirements that would meet an E&M visit. And if you are, you know, if you call them back because you're talking about a kidney stone and then you're going through what a ureteroscopy is and what surgery would look like, then you are having a full evaluation and management visit and it should be billed the same as an in-person visit. But if you're calling a patient back and letting them know the CT looks normal, and on top of that, when you had your initial consultation with the patient, you selected a billing level for that visit Based on the fact that you're ordering a CT scan, which comes with the expectation that you're going to follow up on that result. Now, if we're billing for that, I think that could lead to a lot of overuse, which is what a lot of policymakers and insurers are worried about. Is that these were things that you would call back anyway, and you're also paid for it based on the initial E and M level that you build, but now you're billing again for it, and so that's a big thing that people are worried about. So I think it's going to be important for us as professionals and as Healthcare providers to make sure that we are billing appropriately for what we're doing and not taking advantage of the system. Otherwise, it's just going to go away. People will catch on to that. And then that's when the cord gets pulled on telehealth. Because I'll tell you right now, it's the number one worry that the Congressional Budget Office has and a lot of policymakers have.
0: Yeah, I think it's absolutely a fair point. And, you know, I've seen providers that I actually think are good doctors say they have a high-risk prostate cancer patient and they've scheduled them for a MRI just to kind of further characterize things and maybe a bone scan and they will schedule a visit after every test comes in and the idea is that this patient wants to kind of know what's happening real time and that's a visit and then the bone scan comes in and then that's a visit and now it's localized and you're gonna talk about what comes back you know what the next steps are and that's a visit so you've had four visits that could have likely been condensed to two But yeah, I think we've seen it time and time again. I mean, ADT and urology, I think it's like a perfect example of where we, when I say we, I think you and I were too young for this so we can (laughs) exempt ourselves, but, uh, you know, gained the system and it caught somebody's attention and that became that.
1: Yeah. And I think that, you know, whenever the conversation kind of swings towards like fraud and abuse and overuse, I, I think, you know, actually this happens in in person and the you know the example that you just mentioned you know it, it happens with in person care so it's not going to be unique to telehealth and i think that it just needs to be monitored the same way that you would monitor in person care but what i'm always sort of against is prophylactically putting all these guardrails around it because you think that people are going to do that without actually having the data to support that and providers the government medicare program medicaid programs can easily identify people that are abusing the system that way there are lots of tools, fraud detection tools that are out there. And I think that, I'm not saying that any of this is fraud. I'm just saying that there is obviously the potential for that, but those things can be quickly picked up and addressed. And that's how they are addressed in in in-person visits. And that's how they should be addressed for telehealth visits.
0: One of the things that sometimes can be tricky in my experience are actually obtaining relevant labs, especially imaging. I like to see my own scans and not just read reports. You're at a Tertiary academic center. I want my colleague, who's an expert in kidney MRIs, to look at your MRI, not somebody that I don't know. Do you have any recommendations on how to kind of implement that, streamline that, so that the information that you're getting there, so you can make a confident, informed decision?
1: Yeah, I wish I did because <laughs> I think that's a that's really a, a, you know a struggle that we have too. I'm on a team that we have a call once a week, and oftentimes what we find is that some of the same problems that we're having for virtual care, we have for in-person care. But it's almost, uh, it's exacerbated for virtual care because you want, the whole idea of virtual care is that you want the patient to stay close to home, so they should be able to get local labs and local tests. But that also means that we have to acquire those tests before the visit. And you know, I think that I, I don't have any great solutions to it. What we do is we usually try to put out the fires as they come up. Our kidney stone group, for example, they're almost 40% or so of their visits are virtual at this point. And that's a big problem that they had. They were used to seeing patients who would come in on that day, they'd walk into radiology, they'd get an x-ray, then they come into that visit. And now they can't do that. So they needed a mechanism to you know get those x-rays before the visit. And you know we've put some interventions in place but it all involves the same thing which is investment in people you know investment in taking someone else's effort who was doing something else to reallocate them to this if you really believe that this is a big area or a big strategy for your practice you know i go back to that original quote you know <laughs> a, a a vision's a hallucination without funding and i think that if you have to hire extra because of that you know, you may need to do it if that's the vision that you have for your practice. And obviously, that's a lot harder in this day and age of staff shortages.
0: Yeah. And I, I do think, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not an expert on this, that there's been quite a bit of progress made on the ability for patients to do certain things that are quite important. You know, again, post void residuals, urine dipsticks. I mean, you know, we do a lot of our genetic counseling and even tumor genomic profiling where you get a kit mailed to home. So I think there's things that are, leaps and bound mega progress I and mean, I did a I scanned a barcode and gave myself a covid test earlier today screening screening I'm feeling fine thanks but you know there's really stuff that's revolutionized the way we think i mean giving patients accountability giving them some ownership into their care any thoughts on that Chad?
1: yeah no i i agree completely and when i came out of college 20 years ago so i would uh, i worked at the medicare payment advisory commission and back then they were thinking about how to connect health systems and EMRs. And even back then that was a big issue. I think that we've made tremendous progress, but you know, a lot of that progress over the last five to ten years where we can access records, we can access labs, we can access things can get images can get pushed to us as opposed to having it come over and with a a pigeon, (laughs) a CD that's like tied to a pigeon. So like it used to be a couple of years ago. But anyway, I think that there's been progress in that. And the other thing that we haven't talked a lot about, but I think is important, and this is occurring in parallel, is the explosion of kind of the for-profit side of this and digital health companies. And so one thing that health systems have always had is trust, but digital health companies have always owned experience. So digital health companies have tended to figure out how to best make experiences better for patients, bring things right to your home, you know, like you mentioned, the barcode scanning and so forth. So I do think that there's going to be some Lessons that we can learn from those digital health companies, and lessons that digital health companies can learn from traditional healthcare too, in terms of providing appropriate care. And somewhere in the middle, there's going to be an optimal point where we can improve the care experience, make it easier for patients at home, but still have the high quality care that you have from seeing your own provider.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've already started to see some direct to consumer advertising for telehealth and you know various platforms. We're kind of in a biotech hub here in San Diego. I can only imagine that there's an opportunity and, you know, it's not going to be all bad, but probably like most things, it needs to be studied, it needs to be regulated, it needs to be ethically and carefully rolled out.
1: Yeah. And it's tough to study those too, because they don't show up in insurance claims the way that traditional healthcare providers do. So it's hard to understand what the population level impact of it, of cash pay direct to consumers is going to be, but I think it is going to be essential. And I do agree that at the beginning, there's always this Chaotic world where people are doing whatever they can to access patients and cherry picking and so forth. And eventually things will level off, regulations will step in, and we'll find this happy medium. But, you know, I've seen direct to consumer work really well. I've seen direct to consumer not work very well. I saw a patient in clinic one time who. Uh, was seeing me for recurrent urinary tract infections. And she saw me after five infections. And I was like, okay, great. Let's go through your cultures. And she's like, oh, I've never had a culture. I've done telemedicine visits. I describe my symptoms and I get an antibiotic. And you think about that particular provider that they saw, they're probably doing that for every visit. And the impact that that group or that set of providers, you multiply that pattern by all the providers that are doing the same thing. And you think of the impact on antibiotic resistance that's occurred in this country as a result of it is just, and not just that, but just bad care and expense, unnecessary expense for the patient. So I've seen that side. And I've also seen patients that are trying to get in to see a healthcare provider, but you know we're booked out a month and a half and they can't get in, they can't see anyone. So they use direct to consumer and they get their needs addressed. So- it works both ways. and We just need to find a way. We just need to make sure that we're doing the best thing for the patient and making the experience as best as possible.
0: Yeah. And You know, of course, I mean, that's fundamental. What are your thoughts on provider health? You know, how does this impact us? What's the other half of the coin?
1: Yeah, I think a lot of it, provider health is directly associated with how much you like doing video visits. And I think that the providers that never liked it, the providers that feel like that it's too much of a burden for them. They are getting more burnt out when practice leaders and managers and so forth, administrators are telling them that they have to do video visits, they have to do this many visits and so forth. So I think that it is certainly burdensome for patient for providers. It's going to get more burdensome for providers and lead to more burnout if regulations go through where you know you try to do a visit and it doesn't work out and now you're not going to get paid for that visit. Like If those kind of things come into place, it's going to become more of a burnout issue. If there's clinical guardrails around how care could be delivered. Like you didn't meet these five points for this visit, so you're not going to get reimbursed or the patient is going to have to pay full price. Now they're complaining. Those kind of things can lead to burnout. On the other hand, if you like doing video visits and you enjoy the experience, then I think that it can really enhance your quality of life. I do like doing the visits. I do the visits from home. I like being able to finish the visit If I have a little bit of time before the next visit, I can go upstairs, play with my kids, talk to my wife or grab a snack. And I love that experience and I wouldn't give that up ever. I do full days of video and it really is uh, a great experience for me. So I think it really depends on what your mindset is going into it and then the barriers that you're facing as you're trying to do the visits.
0: Yeah, I think that's spot on. You know, I'll share a little personal experience. So I recently transitioned from uh, UT Southwestern Dallas to UC San Diego and Previously, our video visits were done largely from a PC. You could do them from your phone. And I loved that. You know, I loved being able to share the screen and look at CT scans. I pull up a diagram of a prostate and kind of walk them through, you know, what prostatectomy looks like, et cetera. And when I came here, I was under the impression that largely everything had to be done on a phone and it would kind of drive me crazy. Because I'm looking at this teeny screen, I can barely see the patient. I'm literally holding my phone up against the screen. The whole thing's so wonky. It's a seven-year-old trying to look at a teeny tiny picture of a prostate. And then, you know, I kind of drummed around and figured out how to do this on a PC. And it—I was just thrilled at my next visit. I went from literally dreading them, I liked them, to dread them, to like them again. And and I think coming up with setups that kind of work, you know, being in your office, having a little bit of space, catching some sunlight, being at home, having the flexibility is is nice. And I mean, for video visits, for conferences, for all of that, I think, you know, these are all just personal decisions that that we make and, you know, likely some component of that is, is here to stay. But again, I appreciate you bringing up that there is some potential inherent aptitude, fondness for an in-person versus a video visit. This is maybe not like a one-size-fits-all.
1: It's 100%. And I know that because I get the angry emails about it. So like, I think that it's important to recognize that it's not one size fits all. That's also the perspective I've always had with telehealth is that telehealth makes sense and it should always be an option. You shouldn't close it out to patients because you don't feel like patients want it. You should leave it as an option for patients. You should not force providers to do it if they're completely against it. I think that you know, if you leave it optional and we just view it as a way that we deliver, it's just a, another way that we deliver care, then I think that's when providers and patients are just happier because it's just an option. You had your choice of how you wanted to do this visit.
0: Well, I think this is great, Chad. I mean, I've certainly learned plenty, lots to reflect on, things to implement in my practice. What are some, some of your kind of parting thoughts that you would give to people either considering embarking on opening up their telephone and telehealth? practices or or really trying to optimize their existing virtual medical care delivery?
1: Yeah. So I think, you know, for, for people that are just starting out or are interested in starting out, I think that the hardest thing is just overthinking it. And so don't overthink it. Remember that it's optional. Don't be worried if you are only doing one or two a month, you know, as long as it's an option for patients, you're going to have that patient that needed an elementary school teacher that needs to take the day off just to come see you. And the fact that you offer video consultations is going to really make her day. And so I think that don't feel bad if you don't have high volume. I think that you could, you know, just pick a pace that works for you. And then for people that are looking, that are already performing video visits and then they are looking to optimize it, I think the most important thing is is it working from the patient side? Look into that. See who are the people who want to do visits but can't do these visits. Do you have the tech support for those patients? Find out and you will not know the answer unless you ask patients. People aren't necessarily going to come with you and file complaints. Nine out of 10 people are not going to say anything. They're just not going to do the visit. So look to see how you can optimize the experience for patients. And I think that's going to go a long way.
0: I think that's fantastic. And one final question before we kind of wrap up here. Have there been reports on like press gainy scores dependent on proportion of visits that are virtual per provider?
1: Yeah, I, I don't know if I've seen them. Usually when we think about patient satisfaction scores, they're always high. But the caveat that I always say is that it's like Uber. You you tend to get five stars unless you do something really bad. So like, it's no surprise that video visit scores are high because most patients are just like whatever. And they may not necessarily tell you their true thoughts unless you really ask them about it or look at their behavior. If they did a video visit and then they don't come back to video, there may have been something that they didn't like about it. But in in general, I think that patients are okay with it, but you may have to dig deeper to really figure out whether they view it the same as an in-person visit in terms of quality of care delivered and uh, the rapport that they've established with you. But I think an interesting way of looking at that or a study that could be done is to look at volume of visits and see if there's any impact on patient satisfaction scores. But I haven't seen that to date.
0: Well, Chad, you know, it's it's an exciting time. It's a new time. And I think it's screamingly obvious that you really intake the patient experience that you advocate for us, our specialty, our subspecialty, and, and really for physicians in general so you know thanks for doing that i mean it's it's a really i've never taken a deep dive prior to kind of preparing for this on the multiple facets of it you know look forward to seeing your your future contributions thanks again for what you've done to date and you know with that appreciate your time thank you so much for listening If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at underscore Backtable on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable is hosted by Aditya Bagrodia and Jose Silva. Our audio team lead is Kieran Gannon with support from Caleb Hodson and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Ishan Sangwan.
1: And Medavi Avi Social media and PR by Chi
0: Ding. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.